It was sometime around the um, everything was in court, and I just remember uh, receiving calls. I don't know if I saw it first or somebody else. I know I received a number of calls and messages, emails, that sort of thing, from folks I'd worked with over the years on these issues, um, saying, you know, basically what what the, you know, what is going on here? How could someone enter a plea deal and get 18 years for manslaughter in a situation of where it was clear there was violence against women? This is Kim Pate. She's a lawyer and a senator. She helped launch the National Self-Defense Review in 1997, which examined convictions and sentences of women in Canada who'd killed abusive men. She's done a lot of work for women in prison. So she called Helen. I did want to let her know, and I was uh, upfront right away that I thought she should appeal. I didn't think what uh, I didn't know the circumstances, obviously, of her particular case. I was quite certain the whole story probably hadn't been told. And you know what I recognized from so many of the women that I've worked with, that I've walked with, that you know some of whom it's been you know my friends, family members, others, is that the internalizing of the responsibility for this, the um, reluctance to speak about it, the shame that they were involved in something, the belief that what they did was wrong, even if they had a legal defense. That internalization came through in terms of her reluctance to do anything except try to figure out how to get through her sentence and get out. But eventually, Helen did decide to appeal her sentence. Kim started phoning lawyers and judges she knew in Alberta, asking who they would hire if they needed a lawyer. They all said, Mona Duckett. But there was one big problem with the appeal. Yeah, on the face of it, it seemed like a loser. (laughs) I'm Jana Pruden, and this is In Her Defense, Episode 7, Seemed Like a Loser. As the public outcry against Helen's sentence grew, Matthew Behrens was thinking about how it could be used to help Helen. My name is Matthew Behrens, and I am part of a group called Women Who Choose to Live, which works with women who are criminalized and punished for surviving male violence against women. Matthew's an activist. He told me his wake-up call was the 1989 massacre at Ecole Polytechnique in Montreal when 14 women were killed in a mass shooting by a man screaming, you are all feminists. Matthew wrote to Helen in prison, and they started talking on the phone. And then I said, by the way, Helen, you know, there are so many women, including survivors, who would like to reach out to you. Are you okay if they write letters to you? And within a few months, we had uh, two dozen people who had committed to writing every couple of weeks to Helen. And over the course of six to eight months, I think we had 70 or 80 people who were writing regularly to Helen. And that, that gave her a sense of support and community. And it also gave her something to do, to deal with the very long evening hours. So as that campaign of personal support grew, I think it gave her a, a sense that may, maybe there is, there is hope. Maybe we can turn this thing around. He started an online petition opposing Helen's sentence. 
It quickly swelled to almost 30,000 names. A lot of the comments are like this one from Toronto. She has been abused long enough already. This judge did not understand the impact of 30 years of horrifying domestic violence. Her sentence should be drastically reduced. She acted in self-defense. She is being re-victimized. Where is the justice in that? There's just hundreds of these comments. Here's a few more. No woman should have to live with abuse. Misogyny in the court system is rampant. End violence against women. Women who defend themselves against domestic violence abusers should not be in jail. Gender violence is pervasive in Canada, and if a woman fights back, the legal system victimizes her again. This must stop. This is a travesty. This is horrendously wrong. This was self-defense. Women have a moral and ethical right to defend themselves and their children from abuse. Helen Nasland is not a criminal. She is a survivor. Justice for Helen is justice for all women. To be able to mail these comments to Helen, and there she is facing down 18 years, and she's seen these comments. As anyone who's ever met Helen knows, she is the most shy, retiring person. She doesn't want anybody to have to go out of their way to do anything for her. And suddenly, perhaps for the first time in her life, apart from a few isolated examples, she has people she's never met coming forward and saying, we are with you. I cannot begin to imagine the impact that has on someone in Helen's shoes when she is sitting in her cell at nighttime at the Edmonton Institution for Women. Some people posted about Helen's case on social media using the hashtag StandWithHelen. A woman's prayer circle in Edmonton started praying every day to have Helen's sentence reduced. Elizabeth Sheehy co-wrote an editorial detailing the ways the system itself had failed Helen. So first off, you know, a woman in her position is not really in an equal bargaining position to bargain with the crown. The, the scales are tipped against her and, you know, lots of women will take five years or ten years to avoid that prospect of both the public humiliation of a murder trial and having to expose everything that happened to them and then the prospect of being incarcerated for the rest of their lives and separated from their kids. So, you know, there's a huge pressure to take a guilty plea, which Helen clearly experienced. In Helen's case, that pressure was exacerbated by the fact that her son was also charged with first-degree murder. And so her pressure, <laughs> the pressure on her to take, to take a manslaughter verdict and get her son out from under a potential life sentence must have been enormous and irresistible for her. So that's another thing that went wrong. And then, of course, we have a defense lawyer who didn't raise or insist on um, Helen's sentence being mitigated on the basis of the battering and abuse that she experienced over several decades. And then we have a Crown who's, <laughs> I think, felt quite justified in terms of seeking this kind of 18-year sentence and then we have a judge who's not really second-guessing or carefully examining the facts before him, but is instead accepting the deal that's offered by Crown and Defense. All the attention was overwhelming to Helen, but Matthew wasn't surprised. Sometimes you lance a boil 
and then everything comes out. And and I think in this case, um, the the boil of the Canadian justice system had been lanced, and then a lot of people who had been sucked into it and thrown out of it were suddenly speaking up um, and and saying, "I am so tired of this BS. I am so tired of this patriarchal crap." And I'm going to add my voice to those who are supporting Helen. Um, and it's, it's symptomatic of the fact that this is a daily reality for millions of women and kids in this country. After talking to Kim Pate, defense lawyer Mona Duckett wanted to help Helen. But she wasn't sure there was much she could do. Like she said, the case seemed like a loser. Maybe a loser. Why did you decide (laughs) to take it on? Well, Helen had nobody else to help her at that point. It was clear. Um, There were very strong feelings uh, about there being an injustice. And uh, on the face of it, that seemed to be a justifiable criticism. And Helen had nothing else. There was just no one else who was in a position to help her out. So I thought we should do it. Mona Duckett has been a criminal defense lawyer since 1984. There weren't a lot of women in criminal law when she started. But uh, being a woman, representing women, uh, allowed me to uh, see that these women who were caught in the system were facing issues that the people prosecuting them or trying them or sometimes even defending them may not appreciate the perspective uh, as a, be it a mother or simply a female person, only became clear to me because I was in that position. So I could, uh, in many contexts, uh, think about ways in which they were impacted by what was happening around them that perhaps men would not have thought of. Mona had represented women in domestic self-defense cases before. In one case, a woman who was facing life in prison for first-degree murder in her husband's death got a year and a half in the community for manslaughter instead. In another, a woman's murder charge was dropped altogether. And in two of the cases, the Crown agreed to go to trial on the less serious charge of manslaughter taking away what Mona has described as the extortion of a looming murder charge. Mona knows how to fight for battered women. Still, she could see why Helen's plea deal happened. Almost every defense lawyer would say to that client, you have to really seriously consider taking a plea to manslaughter. Unless they are factually innocent, like I didn't do it, I was in Tucson at the time, then they should be recommending a guilty plea to manslaughter because a trial is always a gamble. And if you advance a defense, uh, or if you simply put them to proof, you may lose. And the loss is gonna be the loss of your life and your liberty in the sense that you can be locked up forever. Add to that the situation of a woman who is uh, facing having to run a battered woman syndrome defense in front of a jury. They may have zero sympathy for a woman who has um, been psychologically impacted by the trauma with which she's lived. There may be issues about public disclosure of information that's been hidden 
by the family, uh, by her, by others. There may be concerns about not being believed, and we see that reluctance to talk about it as early as police interviews of women once they're arrested, because usually the police are not interviewing to find out what an individual's life circumstances are. It's usually to get a confession. So they want the person to say, yeah, I shot so-and-so. They don't often care about what led to it, what the person was thinking, what the dynamics were, what the relationship background was. Now, again, that's a stereotypical comment on police investigations. Not all are like that, but the goal of the interview at that police investigation stage is not to appreciate the dynamics in the relationship. And that doesn't just impact what she says at the interview, it impacts her going forward in the system because she has seen that those responsible for the investigation don't care or don't believe or that it's not relevant. Mona argued Helen's case before a panel of three judges at the Alberta Court of Appeal in June 2021. She said the judge and Crown had failed to adequately consider the abuse Helen suffered, and that some of the comments the judge made in court show that myths about abused women are still pervasive in the justice system. Mona also said Helen faced irresistible forces to plead guilty, knowing that turning down the plea bargain risked life in prison. She said the judge shouldn't have accepted the deal. But the most powerful argument Mona had was the public's outrage. There was this groundswell of support, which uh, was not just support for Helen, but recognition of her perspective as a battered woman. Many of those people, I think, had they been trying Helen and sat on her jury, would have acquitted her. Knowing this, Mona decided to appeal on the grounds that Helen's 18-year sentence was contrary to the public interest and brought the administration of justice into disrepute. Those are the legal terms. What it means is that the sentence was so unfair, it made everyday people lose faith in the justice system. To make that argument, Mona included pages of the petition that Matthew started, Elizabeth Sheehy's newspaper editorial, and letters from experts. One letter was from the executive director of the women's shelter in Camrose, Alberta, the closest shelter to where Helen lived. She wrote, Why is it that in rural Alberta, where resources are scarce, do we expect women's safety to depend on how fast she can run through the pasture? The Court of Appeal agreed to hear Helen's case, but not everyone wanted to see her sentence overturned. The Crown prosecution argued against Helen's appeal and maintained justice had been done. Prosecutor Jason Russell said regardless of the abuse Helen had suffered, she'd committed an inexcusable act of violence and said her sentence should stay as it was. He told court, quote, there are killings in the domestic context that are still murder. You might be mad at your spouse for the abuse you've suffered, but that doesn't mean that it's self-defense. And if you kill that person in anger or revenge, it's murder.
I never for a moment had confidence in a win. <laughs> I received the Crown's response and uh, wasn't surprised that they defended uh, the position they took in the sentence. And my sense is I was very sort of charged up with uh, my own feelings about the indignity while being the objective advocate I have to be. But uh, I had some confidence during the hearing of the appeal that one member of the panel maybe was seeing things our way. After the appeal was argued, of course, there's that waiting period, what's going to happen? How will they side? Because, of course, three different judges, three different thinkers, three different perspectives on the appeal, three different reactions to the oral argument that they heard, some of which was reflected in the questions that they posed. No one knew when the Court of Appeal would come back with a decision. In prison, Helen tried to make the days pass. She was used to working hard, and she took every job she could. She got her high school diploma. She wrote to her supporters and pen pals. She paced through the yard, soaking in the tiny patch of air and sky. On the outside, Helen's friends and supporters were nervously waiting. Here's her boss, Guy Turnbull, again. I'm just praying every day she's going to get out. That's why I'm doing this interview, otherwise I wouldn't be doing it. Because it's just senseless, costing us, what, 200 grand a year for her to sit in there when she could be out here paying, you know, 20 or 30,000 taxes into, into, the, into the society and we're feeding her to sit in there. I, I, of course, I don't agree with none of that. That's an anti-government to start with, and that's one thing I don't agree with, especially a person like that. Put, out, put a chain on her. Let her come to work. Let her go to home. Why would we pay to leave her in there? And that's my theory, right? And she seems to really, you know, she's a hard worker and she seems to really like working and want to work. And oh, yeah. She's trying to get every job in there she can get just to pass time because mm -hmm. she's going nuts. You know what I mean? She tells me all about it. Then in January 2022, after considering the case for six months, the court came back with a decision. Mona was bracing for a loss, but she wasn't going to stop fighting. She was ready to take Helen's case to the Supreme Court. We get notice in advance of the decisions coming, obviously, so um, I can't say that at that point we had any level of confidence uh, about the outcome. I think we felt quite strongly at the time that it would be a split decision, but split in or not in Helen's favor was entirely unclear to us. And then do you remember when you got the... So do you find out by email or... Yes. The, okay. Yes. So we have it half an hour before the public does. <laughs> okay. So you know it's coming. You get the email. Tell me about that moment, if you can remember. I had Helen call me that morning because I was able to, in advance, give the institution notice that we'd have the decision. So uh, I think Helen called while I had the decision hot on my desk and... <laughs> I just began reading as it happened the way the order or the judgment was uh, Justice Greckel's decision was first. So I was able to begin reading to her some of the language that Justice Greckel was using. And I realized the clock was ticking and Helen didn't know the answer. And she probably wanted to know the answer. So I flipped to the back of the judgment and told her what the 
result was. The appeal court was divided two to one. The decision was written by Justice Sheila Greckel, the lone woman on the panel of judges. She said Helen's history of abuse and its effects were not considered in any meaningful way in her sentence. And she noted that in an extensive review of battered women manslaughter sentences, none even came close to being as long as Helen's. She said, a woman subjected to 27 years of egregious abuse may be accustomed to seeing herself as worthy only of harsh punishment. That does not mean the justice system should follow suit. Helen's sentence was cut in half to nine years. Helen and I were able to talk long enough on the phone that she got the sense that the words written by Justice Greckel were uh, useful beyond simply Helen's sentence being cut, but that there were uh, comments which would inure to the benefit of other battered women. And Helen was very grateful for that and wanted me to speak publicly on her behalf about that. Nine years is still a long sentence one of the highest Elizabeth Sheehy had ever seen in a battered woman self-defense case. But in the circumstances, it was a huge win, and not only for Helen. So even from Helen's case, I hope that there are things that have or will change. So for example, the prosecutor's ask of 18 years, an agreement to 18 years, uh, I say in retrospect it was not supportable, and the Court of Appeal seems to have agreed. So what, if anything, has happened in the prosecutor's office about their approach to resolving these types of cases? I don't know. But I would hope that something has happened because there should not be another woman who is put in this position. We have a strong case for first-degree murder, therefore we're going to offer you an unconscionably high manslaughter sentence. Take it or leave it. Well, that's not the way these cases should be resolved. Absolutely not. And the tragedy that was Helen's case should have been avoided. So, in other words, if a Crown is prepared to take a guilty plea to manslaughter, they should reduce the charge to manslaughter and give the woman the real choice. Does she want to go to trial on manslaughter or does she prefer to take a guilty plea to manslaughter? I think that the Alberta Court of Appeal decision is kind of like another Lavallee moment. I mean, in some sense, it's a repetition because the decision resurrected some of the statements um, and principles from the Lavallee decision. And I think it's discouraging that the Alberta Court of Appeal has to do that to remind everyone that in fact this was already decided 30 years ago. Mona Ducca did an extraordinary job because to get a plea deal set aside by an appeal court is like climbing a mountain and she did it. The criminal justice system prefers, of course, to leave plea negotiations um, as settled. So it's interesting. Yes, everyone says, very accomplished lawyer. And, you know, people thought that the judge was a good judge. So, you know, the sentence, therefore, must be fine. <laughs> what about the law? <laughs> That's my question. Why aren't we dealing with what the legal precedents are in the area, you know, in order to assess 
what's a good sentence for a woman in these circumstances? What's a fair sentence in these circumstances? With the time she'd already served in prison, a nine-year sentence meant Helen could be out on day parole in just over a year. I know that there was a huge sentiment out there in the public that Helen should be sort of set free immediately. And uh, part of the challenge was tampering that expectation because I just didn't find it to be a realistic expectation. Uh, I don't think Helen ever had that expectation, but she was getting a lot of um, messages from people who thought that she should be immediately freed. So dealing with the reality of her facing a nine-year sentence was sort of the next step in our journey. To get out, Helen would have to go before the parole board and answer their questions. I went back to see Helen in prison a few weeks before her hearing. Uh, yeah, it's so it's just nerve-wracking, yeah, because I just, uh, I, I think my biggest fear is I'm worried I'm going to freeze up and just be at a loss for words. I don't know, because, you know, I got really no idea the line of questions, what kind of questions you're going to ask. Yeah. I mean, one, one way this process we've been through yeah, is almost like a trial run, I yeah. think, in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, like, I know that wasn't easy at all and isn't easy, but, um, you know, some of these things, you, you went through really intensive questioning from me. Uh -huh. <laughs> That's a tough interview. And, um, you did yeah. so well, and you were well, so... I don't know, I didn't feel like I did very well, but, yeah, it's... I just hope they don't expect too much of me. I don't know. I, like, I, I wouldn't think that they're going to pry that much, but I don't, I, I don't know, right? Because mm -hmm. I got a list of yeah. all the people that are observing it. Yeah. So, yeah, and then, of course, that's in the back of my mind. Well, it's not, these, not just these people, a few people in the room, it's... There's a whole bunch of people listening yeah. to this. It's, it's. I don't. Yeah. It's, wow. I hope it. I hope I'm over preparing myself. Yeah. Because if it's worse than what I think it's going to be, I'm. I'm not going to do well. You know, when I was going through the story over and over and thinking about how these people who don't even know you connect with you, whether they're your pen pals, whether it's Matthew, whether it's Kim, um, that you are a person that people. People see who you are, and yeah, and I don't, I don't know how that that comes to be. I really don't. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just me. <laughs> but I think that that fills me with a lot of hope that the parole board will see that too. As we waited for her parole hearing, I was wrapping up my own reporting on Helen's story. I'd conducted hours and hours of interviews and read hundreds of pages of transcripts. But there were things I still wondered about, like what made Miles the way he was? And a big question, was Helen really the one who killed him? That's next time on the final episode of In Her Defense. She shouldn't be there. We know more of the truth. and. Uh... Helen didn't kill anybody. She didn't. I know that. I mean, she uh, probably wanted to. 
but she didn't do it. But there's nothing we can do about that now. You want to talk about what you mean by that? She covered for somebody else. That's all. In Her Defense is made by Kasia Mihailovich and me, Jana Pruden. Our field recording was done by Amber Bracken. Amber also took the photographs of Helen and her family and friends for this story. We've included some in our newsletter. You can still sign up at tgam.ca slash inherdefense. A big thanks to Samantha Edwards for all her help publishing our newsletter. In Her Defense is recorded at McEwen University by Sheena Rossiter, Emily Rubaita, and Sasha Stanoyevich. David Crosby mixes the show. Our executive editor is Angela Pachenza. Special thanks to head of visual journalism, Matt Frainer, and head of editing, Ian Bokoff. Our theme song is The Fighter by Jen Grant. It's arranged for the show by David Crosby. You can email me personally at jpruden at globeandmail.com. If you are experiencing domestic violence and want to talk to someone, you can find resources and your nearest shelter at sheltersafe.ca. To support journalism like this, please consider subscribing to The Globe and Mail. Our listeners get a special discount on new subscriptions at www.globeandmail.com slash podcast deal. Take care and thank you for listening.